there's an ecosystem of corporate governance in Canada mm -hmm. that makes us actually quite unique in many respects. Just what got you here ain't necessarily going to get you there. Welcome to the TMX Exchange Feed podcast series. This is Tanya Roundtree, Global Head of Client Success at TMX Group. And joining me in today's discussion on emerging governance is a very special guest, Rahul Bardwaj, who is President and CEO of the Institute of Corporate Directors. Rahul, welcome and thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Um, when we think about emerging governance, of course, uh, in 2019 in Canada, it's very natural to think about the cannabis industry. Um, the risks, the opportunities, to use your words, are unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And um, there are new companies, new boards, new management teams, new customers, um, and new regulators. And it's, it's a lot of newness. And when you grow up quickly and you grow up big, you know, very similar to tech in the past, um, there really is the big question about what does corporate governance look like. Um, and the task, of course, and the responsibility for that falls to the board. Can you share with us um, what you feel boards need to be focused on, most importantly, in, uh, in this new emerging space? Sure. I think you captured that really well. It is quite new, but we've had new industries before, like technology, which you refer yeah. to. So at least we've got a little bit of a precedent of what to work off of. And uh, also a broader precedent is we've already got you know, corporate governance guidelines. We've also got a strong culture of corporate governance in Canada. So uh, some jurisdictions or some countries, they're really starting from scratch. We're not starting from scratch, which it's is a good, good. thing. That's yeah. a good place to start. But you're right, the newness. And the newness is around strategy. Newness is around risk processes, all of those things internally that new companies were going to have to get their heads around, that new boards will also have to because they need to create trust, they need to have transparency, they need to have compliance as it relates to the regulators, they need to be obviously have confidence they're building with the investment community, and their management team has to be the right one at the right time to get them through the next phase. Mm -hmm. So how do you pull mm -hmm. all of these things together? There's clearly the processes which you will find in policies on very similar analogous companies or industries, which I think they can be tailored. So that, that's not all that difficult. What's going to be an interesting challenge is going to be around strategy and risk. Now, keeping in mind that the directors and boards, when they're uh, fulfilling their fiduciary obligations and their duty of care, a big part of that is oversight of strategy. In other words, right. making sure not only that management is you know, doing things right, but they're doing the right things. Mm -hmm. What is the strategy for the company? Is it the right one at that time? And when you're in a new industry, you really don't know because you don't have that right. track record yet. Yeah. So how do they start to put in the processes, the KPIs, the metrics? That's all going to be a very iterative process. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that coin is the oversight of strategy is understanding the risks to that strategy, whether they're operational or whether strategic risks. And or once reputational, again, too. Or reputational being one of them. Yeah. Absolutely. And cultural risks and mm -hmm. all of the other ones. But the point is, it's in a new industry. So mm -hmm. a lot of those benchmarks haven't been established. So there are guidelines, uh, but it's really helpful to have directors who are both, I would say, experienced as directors, so they understand how strategy, risk, policy, and procedures 
fit together, mm -hmm. but you also need a diverse board so you're actually getting different perspectives. You know, just what guy you hear ain't necessarily going to get you there. Yeah. So it's good to have a good body of experience, but mm -hmm. you also want to have fresh perspectives around that table. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because as a company grows up, if you want to call it that, um, how does that change in terms of the composition of the board and management, right? What was working um, for a smaller issuer mm -hmm. with a retail base or predominantly retail base uh, who suddenly finds themselves at a, at a large market cap with an institutional draw very much changes the way that they need to think about their governance structure and perhaps even the composition of the board. So can you talk a little bit more about that that diverse side and mm -hmm. why you think that's really important on the emerging sectors? Sure. So as, as you noted there, as companies grow and their investor base, base grows, the investors often look to the board to say, we want to make sure that you've got the proper skills and capacities around that to mm. grow the money and the investment and also to make sure that the company is going to succeed within the industry. So that's not all that unusual in and of itself. What's interesting is, you know, how do they establish what a proper skills matrix is at any given time? Not only to build trust with the investors and the stakeholders, but also to make sure that they've got the right voices around the table right. who can not only have oversight of strategy, but also contribute to it and help support a management team in actually creating a good strategy that's going to succeed. Mm -hmm. And in a new industry, it's all new. So they're going to be making it up a little bit as they go along, but as you know, but we've got, as I said earlier, a strong corporate governance culture in Canada. So there's a big skill set to really build on. But I think in the early days, construction of a board is going to be really important. There's, let's say we're talking about the cannabis industry. Sure. There's, you know, the, particularly the newness of it, the new regulatory environment that it's in, the reputational risk that could come along with that as well. Uh, but that was really important in the early days. I think we're working through some of that now, but uh, post-legalization. Yep. But, I, but I definitely know it was tough to attract talent um, if through talking with issuers in that board composition at the early stage pre-legalization. You know, now it's, it's uh, I don't know how many days it's been, but mm -hmm. it's still fairly new. Mm -hmm. And you definitely see boards changing and, and the approach now um, shifting as well into much more oversight and much more independence. Yep, I'd, I'd say that's right. It'll be interesting to see where we are in three years. Mm -hmm. Is the reputational risks that you're speaking of, it'll still be there, it just might be different. Mm -hmm. How is this actually going to uh, impact communities? How is it going to impact employees? How is it going to impact the market? These are all to be determined. So that reputational component is certainly going to be there. Then there's going to be a lot of M&A activity in here as well. So you're going to make sure that you've got, you know, within your board, you know, folks that have obviously got experience in that area. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that as the regulatory environment sort of evolves with it, that you have mm -hmm. people who are experienced in doing that as well. And a big topic for boards these days, whether it's in the cannabis industry or not, goes back to the old Peter Drucker line about, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yes. So you can have Great some line. really smart folks yeah. with some really good strategies. And uh, if you've got the wrong culture, if you're compensating the wrong things, if it's not the right environment, you know, how does the board know? Because ultimately, it's a big risk for long-term value creation. But you don't yeah. know what you don't know. Especially with no comparables. In particular, as I'm thinking about what you said, uh, when you think about CEO compensation, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a real challenge to, uh, to figure that out in a thriving, emerging, growing, you know, spectacularly growing segment of the market. 
And I think, you know, when we look back at what happened in the tech industry without comparables in the same way, that there were a lot of, I would say, people would call them questionable compensation (laughs) regimes that emerged and then they were, you know, pretty well put aside. New ones were built on it. So there was an evolutionary process. So hopefully that they can learn from that industry. So mm-hmm. the learning curve around compensation and the lack of comparables in the cannabis industry, hopefully there's some lessons they can learn from other analogous industries and they don't have to go through the growing pains. Yeah. But once again, you need that competency, mm-hmm. not only around the board table, but also within the compensation industry, because they're the ones that really keep an eye on, you know, what the incentives are, what the right compensation is. And of course, it has to link in with the strategy mm-hmm. and it has to link in with hopefully long-term value creation. Yeah, for sure. Um, And when I think about that, too, I also think of the dual class share structure and, you know, the emergence of that in some of our some of our public companies. And certainly there's mixed viewpoints um, about that and and what that what that means for, um, you know, both retail, but institutional investors as well. And it doesn't seem to be hurting, you know, uh, some of some of the ones that do go with that structure. Any comments on that? And that's a real tough one, because yeah. I think you sort of nailed it on the head when you said, you know, the fact that it's a dual class structure doesn't really impact necessarily performance or or returns for investors either. So, you know, there's some folks who say that, you know, it's working. The government's uh, governance around it is working. Uh, they're able to create strategies and operational plans that are actually successful, creating value, you know, for all stakeholders, including shareholders. So it's all good. And there's some others who say it's just fundamentally not the way things should be done. Mm-hmm. But I guess we live in a market where you can make that choice in advance. You get to determine yeah. in advance as an investor whether you're willing to accept the terms of engagement, as it were. That's right. And I, I think a big piece of that. Um, is engaging with shareholders, exactly. right, and making sure that there's there's um, transparency around that uh, in communicating the strategy. Can you talk a little bit about? I mean, obviously, outside of the AGM or the public annual meetings, what what can issuers do to engage with their shareholders in a more proactive way? That's a great question, and I'm at the risk of sounding like a plug for the Institute of Corporate Directors. <laughs> yes. one of our most sought after courses is on board shareholder engagement. So there's a big question out there. And once, why would we engage? What's the right time to engage? Mm-hmm. And how do we do it before? And if I go back to, you know, maybe 20 years ago in a very orthodox environment, the engagement was very much around the M&A space. And there are very crisp rules about how do you do that? Obviously, there's a lot of very sensitive information that's mm-hmm. exchanged. But that's a very unique point in time. And now, of course, there are stakeholders well beyond just shareholders that need to be engaged with very early in processes. So whether you're a resource-based industry, an extractive one that's moving into a particular geography, you want to open up mines or something like that, well, you need to think more broadly about the stakeholders that you could be engaging at that point or need to not only to have support, but to get through the regulatory to make sure that you've actually got a viable business at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So there's that on the very macro level. And then there are those who would say that it's actually not the board's job to actually engage with shareholders one-on-one. But that seems to have Mm -hmm. evolved quite a bit now, too. It seems to, yeah. Yeah, it seems to have. And it de-risks a lot of the issues as well. And it gets rid of some of the unknown unknowns. 
So there seems to be a movement now, and, and there's a bit of a dialogue around when the right time is and in what context. And of course, you know, you want to set the parameters of what's right and what's wrong, but it's a different one in every context. Yeah. But as an issue, the fact that we're speaking about it is because a lot of boards are thinking about it. For sure. A lot of management teams are thinking about it, and they're trying to figure out who the right parties are at what time. But if there's one rule that's coming out, it seems to be, is engage early and engage often. Right. And and do you think that's a function? I mean, in Canada, we certainly see it, but there's there's activists. Absolutely. And and I wonder if that's you know a preemptive way. And I would imagine that that it is a strategy now yep. um, that we just didn't see in the past, and and now we're getting to see a lot more of that. And. In your, from your perspective, is, is that what you're seeing as well? Sure. And, yeah. and, and it, once again, to use the word risk or de-risk, right. you don't want to go into an AGM to find out all of this stuff at the podium. Yep. That's not the time to no, find this out. And you want to know going into a lot of these, uh, particularly AGMs, you know, where your investor base is, where your stakeholder base is, what are the key issues, and are they actually being addressed in there? So you don't have to bake the whole event in advance. That's not the point. But there yeah. shouldn't be any huge surprises in there. And, of course, you know, when it comes down to electing committee members, chairs, and board members, you know, those that are seen to be tone deaf to their stakeholder group mm-hmm. are probably not going to have a long term on a board. Yeah. And, and, of course, we've seen changes uh, recently, too, as companies are maturing, going back to the cannabis space in, in particular, um, where there hasn't been that independence. And it seems that shareholders are really, um, you know, uh, focused on that, of course, because they're used to that. They're mm-hmm. used to the independence across other sectors and the splitting of chairman and CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, any comments on that and what we're, what we're seeing evolve in, in that space? Sure. So the, the bigger the company, the broader the investor base Yes, you know, they're seeking more independence from the directors for sure. Um, everybody understands the move from a, you know, a small private company into the public getting listed and everything that comes around that for sure. The uh, chair CEO role in the split, it's far more common in Canada. It's, it's sort of the rule of thumb here more than not, particularly mm-hmm. in the listed space for all the reasons you know. Um, other jurisdictions, not so much. They have a slightly different view of it. It raises eyebrows in some places. Uh, you know, when you have board oversight of management and management is the chairman, you know, sure you can set agendas that could be very relevant, but it creates a certain accountability issue that's constantly being debated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we think about what, you know, has been a relatively recent industry on the emerging front as well, crypto. Right. And, and lessons learned. I mean, I think about just high growth in, in the past with technology, but what specifically about what we've seen with crypto, which which is, you know, again, all of those unknowns, all of the newness, um, what can we learn from that that can be applied to some, you know, current and maybe future emerging industries? That's an interesting question. I guess when I start to think about crypto, um, I guess I see two sides of it. One is sort of the ICO world of the initial coin offerings and the sort. And and, and that, that's a different that's a whole different beast in of itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then there's crypto as it relates to even crypto, blockchain, everything in that technology world mm-hmm. as it relates to established businesses that have to deal with this new uh, with this new beast called cryptocurrency out there. So on the one hand, when you're looking at you know companies that are you know 
floating ICOs and the sort. You know, there's a big sense of you better have sophisticated investors that understand what they're actually buying mm -hmm. into and what the governance scheme is around that. And we know that uh, it's been a highly speculative market, as you can see, at least with blockchain and all the fluctuations it's had. So that's evolving. Mm -hmm. And of course, the regulators are struggling with what do we actually do about this too. Yeah, and especially with such strong retail support. Exactly. Yeah. And then if you shift it for a moment and you start to think about more established listed companies who are going to be looking at cryptocurrency or, or blockchain technology and the sort and saying, okay, how does this impact our business and our strategy? And frankly, back to our board conversation, you know, how do we know that we've got the competency not only in management but around the board table to mm -hmm. really evaluate its impacts? both from an opportunity standpoint and clearly from a risk standpoint, because the last thing you want to do is be caught asleep at the switch and suddenly these disruptive technologies or that disruptive disruptive financial instruments could really undermine the core of your business. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. a real challenge for companies out there. For sure. And when I think about what they're facing, you know, both from getting up to speed on the new technology or the regulatory bodies, um, the costs that are involved. And I think about, you know, our venture exchange and where um, issuers are forced to be prioritizing their dollar spend. Clearly, governance is important, but they don't necessarily always have the budget to be able to start building like a billion dollar company, of course. What tools um, would you recommend from a skills matrix perspective for those smaller issuers who are really trying um, to go by the book with all the right checks and balances, but really aren't sure of where to start. Sure. So I guess there are two aspects of that. One is where do you go to find those folks? Mm. And once again, I just remind you, we do have a director's register at the Institute of Corporate Directors. Yeah. And we've got a, a very busy time with our members um, who are seeking out particular skill sets will come to us. And we've got a full director's register of over 4,000 who are actually ICD.D accredited. Right. So um, directors, and uh, we have a say half of them are women, which is another thing for boards that are mindful of, of having diverse boards, particularly around gender. Yeah. So we've got a big service that we provide to our membership through that. Okay. Then the question is, is how do you know what you're looking for? Right. And that's the big challenge on constructing a skills matrix. You know, I think there are a lot of companies that think about a skills matrix. You just sort of dust it off at that time of year when it's you know proxy time. You're getting ready for it. Right. What do I need and what do I look at? Yeah. But if you appreciate that a skills matrix is a great place to really help you think about the strategy that you've got and where it's going. And does your board represent or reflect the type of not only oversight, but the contributions that you would be looking for. So, you know, do you have folks there that can help you test the strategy on um, response to crypto or blockchain? Mm -hmm. Do you have board members who are well-versed in this from other sectors or from other industries that they bring into this? So that's an extremely important place to start. Mm -hmm. Even small issuers can start by having a fundamentally you know, strong look at a skills matrix. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a corporate secretary, um, your list of companies, one would expect you would do. You would think yeah. that they would be spending a good amount of time looking at that. Yeah, and I was I was listening to an interesting conversation. Um, I forget what media outlet, but about the transition for Uber and whether or not they would have entered into some of the challenges that they'd had if they'd been a public company instead of a private company. And so, I mean, it's really interesting. We've we've seen this trend of companies staying private longer 
but that does have an impact on our governance structure. Is that something that you're um, that you have any comment or any opinion in weighing in on? Sure. So that's a big. It depends. Yeah. Right. So it depends on the size. It depends on the level of sophistication of the investors. Have you got private equity groups out there that are extraordinarily sophisticated as well? Sure. So they will have governance. You know policies, procedures, structures in place mm-hmm. that are going to give them the confidence that their investments are, in fact, going to be you know, stewarded properly, that they've got the proper oversight of strategy, for sure. The smaller ones, perhaps not so much. And it really depends on how quickly a company has grown as well. Mm-hmm. Because it's one thing to have the policies and the procedures and the people around corporate governance. The question is, actually, do you have a culture of doing that? Sure. And that doesn't mean you know, do you like it or not? It's, is this a part of who you are as a company? And that takes mm-hmm. some time to get in that rhythm to make it a part of your own DNA. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't happen overnight. So an unfortunate situation is if you have people from a board who are extremely experienced moving into a company that doesn't have um, a rich experience around corporate governance, let's say in the cannabis industry. Sure. It's going to take some real patience to make that happen because mm-hmm. you really want to build a culture around that, and that does take some time. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, this has been really, really insightful. I, I, I want to try to extrapolate some of your best ideas. And uh, if we were talking to um, issuers both on TSX and TSXV, and you can you can decide if there is different advice for, for each segment, um, but what would be the must-dos in, in terms of approaching um, board composition or corporate governance in general, um, to the best of your ability. What would be what would be your must dos if you if you had to lay those out? The non negotiables, right? Uh, so once again, it may seem like a bit of a shameless plug, but a, an organization <laughs> that's committed to ongoing co- corporate governance education yeah. is really important. Yeah. It's not a point in time; it evolves. The context of corporate governance is changing all the time. So corporate governance 25 years ago in the context and what we're looking at now, very, very different. We touched on things like social media and reputation and culture and crypto and artificial intelligence, fourth industrial revolution. It's so different It's now. just so fundamentally different. So you really need to keep up with the times. And so there's lots of education opportunities, particularly with us at ICD. We're oversubscribed on a ton of courses uh, that are very future-looking that directors go to. Excellent. And we're a membership association that we've got lots of information, and we do lots of research for large and small issuers that have particular issues they want to get involved with. We've got conferences, chapter events. When we move from this purely education company to, frankly, a social purpose business, and our social purpose is to build trust and confidence in Canadian organizations by developing and activating directors. So the idea is public companies, private companies, chair, you got a board, we need to build trust in Canada, and we do that because of our culture of good corporate governance. The whole point is to say there's an ecosystem of corporate governance in Canada Mm -hmm. that makes us actually quite unique in many respects. Mm -hmm. If you're a small issuer or a large issuer, your directors can be and should be a part of that ecosystem, either contributing their best knowledge into that, so perhaps participating on conferences and being on panels, but for those who may not know issues around, let's say, you know, shareholder engagement or how to be a digital director or board oversight of harassment, well, we're the ones that create the platform for them to go learn, 
meet with their peers and share with their peers. So it's for directors by directors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the same way management looks at their team and their own talent development, I think you should look at the corporate governance part of your business, being the, the board in particular, and making sure that you actually invest in them as well going forward. Because if you've got a well um, you know, well-invested and, and educated group of directors and management, you've got a much better chance mm-hmm. of actually getting better decisions. Absolutely. Not just better processes and policies mm-hmm. and procedures, but ultimately the outcome you're looking for is better decisions. Absolutely. And better public companies. And better public companies. With that, thank you so much, Rahul. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, we look forward to having you again. I look forward to it as well. Thank you. You bet.